Hello and welcome to Housewives and Me, a podcast about why we love the real housewives. I'm your host, Connor Bean, and welcome back for another brand new episode. I'm so excited for you to hear today's interview. It is with the sociologist and author, Danielle Lindemann, whose new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, is such an interesting look at the way we watch the shows, the way we think about the shows, what they say about us culturally. And I love as well, Danielle is nuanced and kind of fair about reality TV and not afraid to kind of maybe mention the stuff that isn't great about it too, but she ultimately sees it as hopefully a tool for some social change as well. So I think you'll really like this chat. It is definitely an interesting take on the shows that we haven't always had on this program before. But first, I wanted to just quickly discuss this because it, of course, is big news for us housewives heads and I don't always recap the shows on here because it's just a lot week to week and I'd rather the more general conversations because I think they go in more interesting directions but you know it would be remiss of me to not discuss briefly the first episode of the new season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills they're back they're back at it again we got a very explosive trailer which in and of itself suggests that there's lots to come this season The premiere episode was really interesting because it kind of picks up almost instantly after the reunion for last season. We know that they kind of effectively started filming almost straight away, which usually there is a little bit of a break or they have more time off and they kind of come back a bit more refreshed. Whereas it seems this time they didn't want to miss a single moment. So they're kind of back at it almost immediately, which created an interesting kind of dynamic this time because I felt like it wasn't a premiere where it's like, how have you been? What have you been up to? It's more like, let's pick back up where we were almost immediately, which is an interesting take. It worked for some things. I don't know. We're also now seeing stuff that we've seen a lot on social media, like when Evan Ross Katz was on this podcast, we discussed how a lot of stuff happens online and the housewives react and jump in, particularly for Beverly Hills. And then by the time it plays out on the show, it feels almost like old hat, something that, of course, is happening with the Kardashians on their new show as well. We're seeing things that we thought we kind of had played out already and they're kind of rehashing them. So I'm not sure in a way like the social media side of things is starting to kind of book me now, like this story about uh, Rinna and Sutton and Watch What Happens Live and the comments about the Elton Jane, excuse me, Elton Jane, Erica Jane, Elton on the brain, the Elton John event and how uh, Sutton is implying or saying, I should say that she thinks that Rinna basically got there on her behalf and Lisa Rinna has hit back on that online, etc. And it's fun seeing them talk about it, but also I'm like, oh, did we not do this already? So it'll be interesting to see what they hold on to when it comes to petty arguments and conversations and what they let go of and also what comes into the frame that we maybe don't know about from social media. That's the stuff that I'm the most excited about. The group seems to have some interesting dynamics at the moment. We have noticed, of course, that Sutton, Crystal and Garcelle are becoming a bit of a unit. We saw that with a piece that they did for the LA Times um, last year that came out around the time of the reunion, which, of course, looking now we know is also when this is filmed. So it does seem interesting. I quite like that Crystal and Sutton kind of made up off camera because in a way while I would have liked to see them maybe have that conversation on camera it's also interesting that real life happens with these women even when we're not filming them 24 7 you know like you you see that there's been an evolution while there's been that little bit of time off so I like the idea that they've kind of moved past their issues and they're going to be friends and of course we saw from this episode with all the Miami stuff that Garcelle and Sutton really do seem to be kind of thick as these which is a dynamic I really enjoy watching as well. Meanwhile, for now, Rinna is still very much in Erica's corner. We get them hanging out and kind of kikiing. And later on in the episode, Kyle seems to be trying to kind of, I guess, stay friends at Sutton, but also, you know, like 
go to bat for Erica Boo, which let's just dive into Erica for a second. What the fuck is going on? I'm sorry. Like, I know last season we sort of, you could have initially thought the benefit of the doubt. She hasn't, you know, let's hear her sigh. But now I'm just like, she's coming off so rude and callous and unlikable. And I, she don't mind if a housewife isn't likable. But sometimes there's a vein of unlikability that they get into where I'm like, you've lost me now. And it did feel in points with Erica this week that that was happening. I mean, her conversation with Garcelle at the fitness class and her sort of defensiveness around, well, I didn't actually threaten Sutton. What did I say? And, you know, her claiming that actually legally I'm totally fine. So let's just kind of have a laugh now. And then that scene where like they cut into like her talking to a producer and being so rude and dismissive. And also with the drink in hand, and we know that this season in the trailer, like there's a lot of talk about her drinking and like, has it gone too far? And it felt like it reminded me of on Denise's second season when they left in that scene early on. And I talked about this recently on the show, actually. Um, they left in her ordering uh, a drink while they were visiting New York and she wasn't very nice to the waiter. And it felt like they'd left it in to sort of set up the idea that down the line, Denise would be trouble for the group. And it felt like, Production was kind of trying to tell us something, perhaps not so subtly. And this scene with Erica kind of berating a producer about Bravo doing their due diligence. I was like, oh my God, this is beyond. So that I didn't love. Although I suppose the thing with Erica is it's going to be fascinating watching it all kind of crumble or her try and hold up some of the artifice around how she's trying to spin everything that's gone on to make it look like she had no idea what was going on. And I yeah, I don't know. It definitely left a bad taste in my mouth. I'll talk about Dorit in a second, but I mean, we have to shout out that kind of, I don't want to say already iconic because that's probably a bit over the top, but the scene that's already been memed a lot of Sutton arriving to Kyle's after they find out what happens to Dorit with the home invasion <laughs> trying to like imply that her kind of day-to-day drama with her fashion business is on a par with a home invasion and Kyle having to politely be like, it isn't that at all. Sutton was a funny one for me in this episode because there's times where we like her, but she was also really shady. And I think it's such a fine line with her, her threading that needle of not being too mean, but also not being afraid to actually kind of let the girls have it a bit. Because I do feel sometimes in Beverly Hills, they can kind of pull their punches a tad and that can be a little bit frustrating. And Sutton... She's a bit more direct, which I do appreciate. Let's talk about Dorit. That sounds like a something Lisa Rinna would say. Um, but obviously, we had seen the headlines and the reporting about Dorit's home invasion. In fact, they obviously used NBC news footage and kind of stuff that had been out publicly about this in this episode, which sort of contextualized it for us. Um, there is this weird thing now online that I think happens a lot with celebrity culture where people like assume everything is a setup and fake and a conspiracy. And I'm seeing that around the Dorit thing. And while I think it's good to have a bit of awareness about what we're being presented on screen, a huge part of why I do this podcast is for us to discuss the meaning and the symbols behind what we watch on screen. In fact, this week's episode is largely about that. It's with a sociologist. I found this assumption that she was lying about the robbery really strange. I just... And listen, maybe it'll all come out at stage so they can sell the house or get some money out of it and I'll look like a fool. But I just did not get the impression from how upset Dorit was talking about what happened, that it was something that she had anything to do with. And I don't think that should be controversial to say, but the way things have gone online, sometimes it feels like it is. So I found it quite like, it's obviously hard to watch somebody talk about being, you know, threatened at gunpoint and having their home invaded. And it's also that strange thing of like, how are they going to present this to us on the show? What is it going to be like to hear this person talk about it? And 
you know, for me, I didn't think it was easy. I had a break in on my home a couple, well, it was end of 2020, so about a year and a half ago. And then thankfully I wasn't there. But coming home to that and having to deal with the aftermath was horrible. And that's a very different scale to what happened to Dorit. So I can't imagine what must have been going through her head in the moment. And then I guess processing it with the women and I think there's, I think where some of the cynicism might be coming from is, you know, we have the stuff filmed in the moment and then we have the interviews to camera, which are filmed a little bit after something has happened. And I think sometimes that format requires someone to relive and explain something as if it's happened to them then and there, but they're actually reflecting on it already. And so you're to read was kind of going back to that place of the shock about what happened to me and talking about it almost in a present tense kind of way. And I think people took issue with that but I mean that's just the format of the show it's going to feel a little bit performed because while it is reality TV and it is real it's also a slightly artificial setting where you're having to talk about something that happened to you in a way that can be used for sound bites to fit into a 40 minute episode of TV so I'm wondering was that where some of the disconnect was for people because in the stuff filmed with the women Dorit actually to me just seemed like she was in shock and if anything that scene with her sat outside Kyle's house after while PK looks for her phone that to me was like this is real because the way it was shot and the way she was reacting it just felt like it was very ad hoc and they, they happened to catch it so it was surreal to think that PK landed and went straight to Kyle's house and, and their first meeting was caught on camera like that felt I don't want to say convenient it was just a bit jarring but it also seems like this all unfolded so quickly at the top of their filming schedule that there was no way for them to do it any other way I don't know maybe I'm naive maybe I've been drawn into a web of lies I would like to think I'm not I like to give people the benefit of the doubt even when they're wealthy and people are cynical about that you know stuff like home invasions and and being threatened like that it's just no laughing matter so it will be interesting to see how that plays out and I don't mean that in a kind of creepy way just actually it's Brian Moylan who's a great writer and of course recaps uh, Housewives of Beverly Hills for Vulture.com he made the point that what happened to Dorit is very upsetting and also it may not make for a storyline per se because this kind of shock and trauma is not something that you just get through by episode four. Like it's going to ripple through her life for a long time and probably leave her a little bit shook. And I do think the women rallied around her beautifully. And I think the point Erica made about speaking to a therapist and processing it is probably something that she might need to do, whether it happens sort of on camera or off, you know, I'm sure we'll get elements of it. I mean, we've had therapists pop up in the Real Housewives for years, so who knows, but an interesting kind of arc for Dorit because it's it's heavy real life stuff in a way that these shows don't always get into. Although, as we've talked about in this podcast, Beverly Hills and some of the Housewives shows have become a true crime show. So maybe, you know, it's just elements of real life do blend in in a way that sometimes is uncomfortable to watch. So that is her premiere. I've, that's just my general thoughts. You know, I'm sure the season will evolve and everybody's doing recaps and there'll be lots of chats about it over the coming weeks and with my guests on this show as well. I'm excited to ask people what they make of this season as it unfolds. But yeah, that's where I am for now. I'm optimistic about this season. I think there's things I'm I'm excited to see how Diana fits in, Kathy's return and how that might kind of go south for her. I'm very interested in. So lots to come with Beverly Hills, I'm sure. And with Atlanta back and Dubai on the way and Girls Trip 2, we have plenty to be looking forward to as well. So for now, let's get back into our chats and our interviews. This is this week's guest, Danielle Lindemann on Housewives and Me.
My guest today is an associate professor of sociology at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. She's an author whose new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, is out now, and it is a must-read. Danielle Lindemann, welcome to Housewives and Me. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about the Housewives. <laughs> so am I. I have so much to ask you because you look at the shows through such a specific lens. So we've lots to talk about in relation to your book. But before all that, I'm so curious, from reading the book, it's clear that you've watched a lot of reality TV as a fan and also studied it as part of your work as a sociologist. But how did you get into The Real Housewives in particular? Oh, The Real Housewives in particular. So that was probably the first or second season of The Real Housewives of Orange County. And it was kind of a period in my life where I was a little sad. I had just broken up with my boyfriend and like moved out of the apartment that we shared. And I was just looking for something to binge. And for some reason, Bravo was just showing it all the time on a loop. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was the season where Vicky fell off the stage receiving a fake award that she kind of made <laughs> up for herself. And just Sounds something about, about right. right, it was just this frivolity, right, very low stakes, kind of ridiculous people. And it really drew me in. And from then on, I was hooked. And you're watching Housewives at a point where it kind of maybe was the kind of bomb that you needed. It was a comfort watch. Were you watching much of the reality TV? Because I kind of got the impression from your book that it's sort of been a figure in your pop culture life, kind of your whole life, really. Yeah, at least since I was, you know, kind of a, a, a young teen on Long Island, yeah. and I discovered uh, the real world, um, mm-hmm. the real world London, for some reason, really drew me in, even though people always say that season is really boring. There was just something about that season that I loved. Um, and it's sort of been, yeah, reality TV has sort of been an old friend that I keep, you know, returning to over, you know, I don't watch it continuously all the time. Um, I'm pretty busy as a professor, but you know, it is something that I kind of keep coming back to and it is kind of a bomb in a way for my soul. (laughs) I think it's that for a lot of people. And obviously as a professor now, you teach courses on reality TV. It's something that you, you do with students. So what kind of courses do you teach on reality TV and how do the students respond? Because I'd imagine, you know, generations younger than you or I are like, they don't know an era without reality TV. So I'm sure they have such an interesting response to it. Oh, it's so true. I was giving a talk to some of my students recently and I mentioned Survivor and I came to the realization that their whole lives Survivor has been on. They yes, don't know a yes, world oh my God. without Survivor. I think there was one who was born before Survivor aired, but that's it. <laughs> oh I know. <laughs> so of course that made me feel old. But also, right, it's it's really interesting that, yeah, reality TV, they don't know a world without reality TV. And some of the things they watch are different from the things I watch. And they're kind of more into the, you know, the kind of self-produced, like, TikToking, right, and YouTubing kind of mini reality shows. But, yeah, so I teach a course at Lehigh called Sociology of Reality TV, where we pair episodes of reality TV with sociological research and sociological theory So we talk about like sociology of race and then we look at like, you know, critical theory on race or sociology of class. And we look at sociological theories of class. Um, We watch The Real Housewives for that one. Um, And yeah, no, I mean, my students love it. It's, you know, it's it's all the class always fills every every time I teach it. I'd like to think that's just because I'm such a dynamic, amazing professor. But I think also it's reality TV, right? (laughs) It's Um, probably both, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, but no, students are still watching it. You know, it's reality TV is still wildly popular, you know, even among, you know, 20 year olds today. Yeah. And it's interesting, you mentioned that they're into TikTok and YouTube and how so much of what succeeds there feels i wouldn't say derivative reality tv but it's all in the same family of real people and 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 i guess people creating characters out of themselves in terms of the real housewives 
have you noticed like like how do your students respond to that particular franchise i mean it's i feel like it skews a bit older in the sense that it's generally about older people and it's not about say young 20 somethings but like it is i've also noticed just from doing this podcast people across all generations seem to find themselves watching this franchise as well yeah i know i agree it is surprising you know it, i wouldn't say as many of my students watch as say like the bachelor you know they're all watching yeah. they're getting together yeah. and having viewing parties and watching the bachelor um mm-hmm. but a good number of them do watch the housewives especially the new york city housewives i don't know why that is it's maybe because we're ne- located near new york city some of them are from new york city yes maybe that's what it is but um that seems to be the one that they watch if they watch any of them um, but yeah, they are still watching that. And it is kind of interesting because it's not, you know, it's certainly not, you know, people their age or anywhere near their age at this point. Yeah, that's true. Also, something that I thought was so interesting in the introduction to your book and as the book goes on, because we're talking about Real Housewives, but you analyze so many different shows through the lens that you've mentioned there that you would also do in your in your practice as a professor, that there is this sort of snobbery that comes from people or this like disbelief when you tell them that you actually do teach around this subject I mean has that shifted or moved because I find that idea that like oh you're into that question mark but also lots of people are I mean I imagine it's something you get a lot in your professional and personal life yeah it's interesting I do still get that there is still you know that kind of stink attached to reality tv right it's still it's, it's it's a paradox because a majority of people vastly more people are watching reality tv than not watching reality tv but yeah. we still kind of want to distance ourselves from it. We still consider it to be a guilty pleasure um, in some ways. That's especially true in academia. You know, I think if I were studying opera or something high culture, I wouldn't get as many kind of weird glances or snarky comments. Um, but yeah, no, that, that continues to be true. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, what about, you know, someone like you who this is, you know, part of your, your career. Do you yeah. get comments like that? Or is this just an academia thing? I do, and I get two kinds. One is people here, The Housewives is popular, but it is not as, it doesn't have the reach of, say, Love Island or even something like RuPaul's Drag Race where it's instantly recognizable. Mm-hmm. So some people are like, oh, what is that? But also you do get that kind of, oh, how can you do an hour on The Housewives at some random person interview? And I'm like, well, sometimes it can be 90 minutes and I chop it down. <laughs> like, they don't realize, like, as you would obviously get into in the book and in your teaching and stuff, that, like, it's not just us liking these shows because they're entertaining and fun and the bam for the soul. It's also we love the way they're kind of a connector for people to go, well, I identified with what X said, but you thought what Y said was more relevant. What, like, And what that says about us as people. So I think it's just that you do encounter the disbelief. Even when I tell people that like Drag Race and Housewives are kind of my sports or my soaps, they're kind of like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's no different to you watching the football game at the end of the week. It's like I have my benchmarks of stuff that I follow. Exactly. Yeah, nobody calls football a guilty pleasure, which is really interesting. Exactly. I mean, when I when I put it to people, actually, I always say to people when they want to do a pop culture podcast or talk about pop culture, I'm like, don't ever feel guilty because there's so much coverage of sports in mainstream media, which is not a bad thing. People oh, love sports. Like that. Yeah. But like when you go, a sports game is on and there's like the 30 to 40 minutes of analysis before and after, I'm like, this is no different to me watching the Drag Race After Show or the Housewives Recap. Like, we all just want the the conversation on the thing we've just watched or consumed. Absolutely. I think, you know, you really hit on something, which is that reality TV and the housewives, but reality TV in general really is this social connector, which again mm-hmm. is this paradox because we're not supposed to admit we watch it. It's this guilty yeah. pleasure, right? But at the same time, studies show that it actually has this kind of solidaristic function. Like it brings us together and it connects people across class positions. It connects people to some extent across age positions, to some extent across genders. 
Um, so it's kind of this interesting paradox where we're not supposed to talk about it. It's this stigmatized thing, but at the same time, it's bringing us together. And it's funny because what you're saying there, it does come up in the book and that you, you cite so many interesting studies. So I re- like I keep bringing the book because I want people to read it, not just listen to our conversation today. But it's just dawning me there that, and I don't know if, uh, this is slightly because here it's a little more of a cult following thing. But I do find if I find someone who watches even one housewife show, it's kind of like, if you know, you know, and it's a bit of a wavelength thing. And I wonder, does that kind of like, oh, but you get it kind of tone also help the solidarity you're talking about on the bond that there's a bit of, well, we've gone the extra layer and we get it. So I, we kind of get each other. And then you tend to like, that might be part of the bond that you form with fellow fans. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's this sort of, it's it's interesting. It seems like this niche thing, but it's not really niche because a lot of people are watching reality TV. But yeah, yeah, I know when I ever encounter like in academia, like someone at a conference or, you know, someone, you know, at my university who like will secretly admit to me that they've watched the hills or something. Right. And then bond over that. Absolutely. There you go. It's that's true. Solidarity is amongst Housewives fans. There you go. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about some of the shows because you even though you are very busy as an author and as a professor, you still have watched a fair bit of Housewives over the years. And also, I think they illustrate some of the examples from your book. Um, One show that you told me you're pretty much up to date on. And as we've learned, is kind of your gateway drug into Housewives is Housewives of Orange County. Obviously, that's kind of the OG show in the Housewives world, and it's beget this massive franchise both in the US and outside of the US. How do you think the show has evolved? Because obviously, it started as a would-be documentary series through a different lens, and then Bravo shaped it into this different kind of show. Like, watching the most recent season, did you find yourself thinking, wow, this has really evolved from where we started back in the day? Oh, it's virtually unrecognizable, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. you go back and watch the first season, it is this kind of more like naturalistic like document and the women seem to even know each other they're not just kind of thrown together yes um no one's really trying to sell anything right which now is you know like the bread and butter of the housewives is people trying to you know sell skincare lines or you know what have you so yeah it's absolutely it's it's weird you know in the end of each season when they play that like acoustic guitar music that they've played like since season one (laughs) that's the only thing that's the only thing anchoring it otherwise it's a completely different show it was funny too this season that the reunion how they i quite like the set it looks very cool but it was quite unusual in that it was pieces of i guess props and memories from seasons past but right. because so few very i think nobody on the couches this season had any had much connection to those old time cast members in those episodes it was bizarre where they were kind of going it's in 16 years look at all the stuff that's happened but as you say also look how much has changed because this cast has very little connection to season one two three and four oh, right because they had the gate and they said oh this is yes. Tammy knickerbocker's gate and yeah like, do they even know who tammy knickerbocker is i was like noella certainly does not no, know who that noella. is gina probably does doesn't. I was like, maybe Heather. I don't know. Heather seems like the most OG. Or sh- yeah. yeah. Well, Heather and Shannon, Shannon kind of started around yeah. the same time. Yeah. But it's funny because we mentioned Noella there. And Noella was an interesting character this season in that she was a newbie and, like, you know, she was kind of butting heads with established cast members. But it was funny reading your book. I thought of Noella because you talk about class, gender, sexuality, lots of different kind of lenses through which to look at the shows. And obviously, Noella talking about her bisexuality came up numerous times this season at the reunion. And in your book, you talk about how bisexuality has kind of, particularly for women, has been something that comes up on reality TV. What was it like to see Noella, I guess, enter into that pantheon of well-known bisexuals on American reality (laughs) TV? (laughs) Yeah, no, it is interesting because, you know, it's kind of part of the same pattern where if you look at like LGBT um, 
people who are re represented on reality TV, female bisexuals are actually pretty well represented. I mean, pretty highly represented. Um, there are a lot of examples yeah. of female bisexuals and it's sort of seen as this kind of positive thing, right? That's often celebrated. Um, not always, but often. Um, whereas male bisexuals on the other hand are virtually absent. Um, yeah. There are very few examples of male bisexuals and when there are, it's, often treated problematically. Um, so I get, yeah, again, this kind of falls into the same pattern where, you know, she indicates that she's bisexual, people kind of embrace it. Also, you know, then there's Heather's daughter, who's also identifying as bisexual and is, you know, this embraced category, um, which, which is great. At the same time, it's kind of interesting to think about, would that be different if it were, say, Heather's son, right? Or a male yeah. character. Yeah, for sure. Or if it was maybe one of the maybe one of the wife's husbands was bisexual or they had an ex who came out of, like, I do right. think the conversation would, would be, be different. it's a bit like that cliche. If you watch an old sex and city episode and they're so open-minded and then Carrie dates a bisexual guy and they oh, all my. just I, go so nineties. <laughs> that episode, I actually show that episode in one of my, in my sociology oh. of sexuality class when we talk yeah. about bisexual stereotyping. Yeah. Because it's just like a checklist of bisexual stereotypes. Of course. Um, yeah, but I mean, I mean my absolutely. students see it as very retro. So hopefully we've we've moved a little bit beyond that. Yeah, hopefully. You mentioned that housewife shows you use them as an example to discuss class and wealth. And it was funny because I think that's always been at the core of OC because they live in gated communities or that's how the show started. But even this year having Heather come back and so much of her return was predicated on the fancy house is finally finished look how lavishy she lives and the sort of contrast with shannon had that life and doesn't have it now gene is still living in a smaller home etc yeah. what was it like seeing it play out this season and what did you make of heather's return and how closely it was tied to i guess class and status yeah it is interesting because there's this weird relationship with the housewives and wealth right where yes the show is sort of predicated on this sort of like house porn right like idea that there are these wealthy people but at the same time you know we, it's kind of a dramatic irony in that like we kind of know that they're not like not all of yeah. them are right especially if we're kind of following them behind the scenes how many of them are declaring bankruptcy right um, yeah you know and as i talk about in my book you know i think that's part of the enjoyment for people is that you know yeah Yes, we love rich people. We love to watch rich people, but we also kind of like like to watch them fall. So, right, this idea mm. that someone is is you know putting on airs and pretending that they're wealthier than they are, I think, is very appealing to a lot of viewers. And I'm not saying that Heather is necessarily doing that, but that's like kind of a trope we see constantly on the Real Housewives. And what there's an interesting like it's almost an aside near the end of your book where you say that you often like the quote. I think the quote you said was really real moments on these shows where like something kind of peeks through where we're like we know the X scene might be staged or like produced to get a certain reaction or a person has been pushed to a certain place but then something will peek through. Did you have any of those really real moments with OC this season? Because I felt like at times the Shannon Heather thing went beyond just you know women like I felt like there was like history there or even Gina and Heather I thought oh there actually might be a real friendship here like did you ever feel like that or did you think it was kind of still very stagey and produced um I mean I don't think it's a hundred percent stage I think there there are certainly real moments yeah. it's really hard with the real housewives especially the OC at this point because so much of it is about the fourth wall it's about the show yeah. itself right like yeah. the idea that Shannon's gonna bring up this thing on camera it's always about on camera that's gonna mm -hmm. discredit Heather and her husband um so yeah I'm trying to think of just kind of real 
really real moments. I don't well, you know. You know, Dr. Jen, toward Dr. Jen and Ryan, at times I felt oh. like this almost felt too raw for TV. I was like, oh God, I don't know who should well, be doing yeah. this. Well, yeah, I think, oh, okay, so you know what I think is a really real moment? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think, I mean, he just, he just seemed like he didn't want to be on camera. Also, so yeah. it was for me. It was really hard to get a sense of that relationship because it, he just didn't. He didn't seem to want to be there. Um, but I think the Noella thing is really interesting because who was that other friend that they had on, and then she kind of disappeared earlier in the season. Uh, Nicole, Nicole, who had the strict kind of history with Heather right. and Terry. Yeah, and so there's that moment where like Nicole thinks she's just like on a fluffy reality show, and then Noella shows <laughs> yeah. up, and Noella is like going through major stuff. Yeah. Right? Like Noelle has just been served with divorce papers. Noelle is just like breaking down at lunch. And you just see this look on Nicole's face. Like I, yeah. like, it's almost <laughs> like, do you ever see the Truman show where she's like, I did not sign up for this. Right. And to me, that was like a really real moment. Like where she's just like, Oh no, like I thought we were just going to have lunch and like talk about like necklaces and like our friends. But we're like, <laughs> this is real. Right. I think a lot of what, I think in some ways Noelle was very stagey, but I think, a lot of what she was going through just really raw and real this season. That is exactly how I felt about Noella because I think viewers were quite harsh in her in a way where they're like, she's doing too much. And I was like, well, she is. But also it's, it was very clear to me just from how it was filmed and how it came up on the show that she did had no idea that divorce was coming. And so you had someone grappling with a real shock and then obviously, you know, something like her dad dying later on, which obviously you cannot account for when you sign up for a show. So she had these very real moments of shock and kind of, I guess, trauma. But then also she did strike me as, and I mean this in the best possible way, because I know you use this term in your book, shitster. Like she was a great shitstirring reality star. So it was a very interesting combination of kind of the high and the lows of a reality star watching Noella, in my opinion, anyway. Absolutely. I agree. I think it's a little of column A and a little of column B, right? Do I think she's probably like a high maintenance personality and she would have been so regardless of what was happening in her life? Probably. Yes. Right. Yes. But I also think there are a lot of like really major developments in her life that she legitimately seemed to be blindsided by. Um, yeah, I do think people were were pretty harsh. I mean, people saying like, well, she wasn't even close to her dad. Well, okay, but she can still grieve. I mean, yeah, you know. and I yeah, and even like I I really liked Gina, and I thought Gina's arc this season was very interesting. But and I know she was a bit drunk on a cast trip when she said it, but when she kind of said shit happens about I her know. dad's death, I thought Gina, even if this is a bad look, even for someone as likable as you, who can kind of get away with the odd flop. I know. I really I've liked Gina up until this point, but I mean, yeah, this season she, I didn't. Think she was very likable mainly because of how she dealt with noella but also how she dealt with shannon as well yeah and shannon's <laughs> shannon's arc on the show is fascinating because in one way you do get the sense she is probably doing better than ever in a lot of ways but also she does feel like a fragile person in that yeah. she's still not quite over the things that happen and i do think there's a sense of I don't want to say bitter because that's not fair, but I think there's hurt over the life that she she lost, not just a loving husband, but I think the lifestyle because obviously she's still around money and she wants to make money at that level. I mean, she's a fascinating character because we root for her, but I also sometimes want to be like, it's not that bad. Like you're actually doing okay. <laughs> I know. And she complains about the amount that she was given in the divorce. I'm like, really though? Okay. Um, yeah, Shannon. I mean, yeah, I think the issue with Shannon too is that she doesn't know how to defend herself. She does. She doesn't deal well like under pressure. Yeah. So when they get, she's easy to gang up on. Another show that you have watched quite a bit of and is actually back on our screens very soon, and kind of interestingly has been on for a while, but feels like it's getting this renewed interest is Beverly Hills. And we mentioned class and money and status when it comes to OC, but I feel like Beverly Hills takes that and just turns it up to a hundred. Like that just seems to be 
really at the core of what has made that show stick around for so long. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, you know, I mean, what do I know really about their finances? But it seems to be that there's, yeah. that's this franchise where there's really like real wealth, right? Like Lisa, you know, Lisa Vanderpump level. Well, I mean, maybe not for some like Dorit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, yeah, the house porn, the, you know, the amazing vacations. Yeah, I'm all in for that. It's very escapist. And you do, I mean, you use a lot of great examples in your book from reality TV across the board. You, you, you kind of cite certain scenes and characters, but you do bring up the one and only Dana Wilkie and her infamous $2,500,000 <laughs> sunglasses. And you kind of use her as an example of how, particularly in a show like Beverly Hills, which is so status and wealth driven that there actually can be a point where some of the status and wealth can be read as too much for the viewer, but also for the women on the show. Right. So I talk about um, the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu who talks about this concept of habitus, which is basically like the class status in which you're born and raised mm-hmm. comes with a whole set of like orientations toward the world, tastes, beliefs that come along with your class status. So like if you're like raised in like the upper class, you learn to act a certain way in the world. And, you know, one of those things is that wealth is supposed to whisper, right? You're not supposed to scream yes. wealth. So then you have someone like Dana come along and talk and openly say how expensive her sunglasses are, even though, and she doesn't even really get it in the, in the finale too, where she's saying, but you talk about your expense, but they're not saying how expensive they are, right? Like Lisa Vanderpump is, you know, she's living in a a house with a freaking swan moat, right? But she's not talking (laughs) about the price of her moat. She's not talking about the price of her house, right? So to them, there's that that important distinction where you can have wealth, you can have really expensive things, but then to say how much they cost is really a bridge too far. And it's funny because you've just reminded me that back in the day, I think it was on Beverly Hills and OC and maybe Atlanta a bit, and actually in New York as well, they used to flash up on screen how much they were spending on certain things. Like yes. child's birthday party costs like $30,000. And I, it's funny that they've moved away from that, particularly as some shows have gotten more lavish, almost either like they don't want us to know exactly or they want us to imagine that maybe, as you said, we oh, don't know their finances. Although they did do that. They did that this, this season because I remember when they were shopping in OC, they were shopping oh, yes. in Aspen and then I, Emily bought like a, $3,000 plate and I was like that doesn't track for me Emily does not seem <laughs> she just she seemed to you like someone who would and she said it's for a friend she doesn't seem to me like someone who would buy a $3,000 plate for a friend no I'm be- yeah I'm Beverly Hills if Dorit did that I would eye roll but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. but Emily was not really her vibe but yeah Beverly Hills seems it's just funny because there are other housewife cities where yeah there there's a little bit of aspirational stuff to it but it feels fairly rooted in reality but sometimes watching as you say, the house porn and all that stuff, Beverly Hills just seems to be in another realm now. And I, it almost feels like not a victim of its own success, but like it's the worm eating its tail. Like the bigger the show has become, the more they are living even more lavishly. Oh, kind of, yeah. For the our crazier Dorit's hairstyles get, like the more gold she like melts into her hair. Yeah, absolutely. And what about, I mean, we're facing into a new season where Erica Jane seems to be the focus yet again. And we've just, we had a mammoth season last year where, her divorce was, you know, under the microscope and how her money was or wasn't gotten and whose money actually was, etc. Like, it's an interesting one because in your book, you talk about kind of marriage and relationships and how they're played out in reality TV. And hers, in a way, was at one point unconventional because of the age difference and then how supportive he was of her career. But then it's also this cliche of 
the like allegedly the younger woman and the older man and the gold digger like erica's relationship seems to bring up a lot of tropes that we see across reality tv in general oh it does right so there's like the gold digger trope right there's the person coming on to promote her own brand trope yeah right yeah, there's the yeah. filing for did they file for bankruptcy no but there's a divorce. Divorce. Right. And even, as you say, how real is the status or how real is the money? Like I say, viewers kind of like that. Oh, they're rich, but are they? Question mark. Yeah, there's that. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about their relationship, though, just sociologically, the way we kind of like cast a side eye at their or viewers ca- and, the, and even cast members cast a side eye at their relationship. Like it's not real. Right. But like marriage is a social construct. Right. Like romance is a social construct. So like what we consider to be a real marriage or real relationship is just what we were taught to consider to be real. And at other points in history, relationships like theirs were more common, more accepted. Other places, they're more common, more accepted. So this idea that like a, a marriage has to be a marriage of people roughly the same age who are doing it for love and only love is a very specific social construct. That's true. I hadn't I hadn't thought of the way. I would love for Eric to be like, oh, marriage is a social construct, ladies, and just like <laughs> go so just take a sociological turn, and they'd be like, okay, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, whatever you say, Erica. And it, it's yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting how it plays out on this most recent season because the way she has like kind of le- leaned into being this hardened, you know, May West style, take no bullshit kind of character to deflect from the public outcry about her. Uh, uh, involvement or not in whatever Tom Girardi did. Right. Like, I think she is going to go even further down that rabbit hole and I can't quite picture how bad it's going to get because her social media has already been embarrassing. Like, I don't know. She's definitely one that viewers are going to always feel polarized by. I didn't even know that she was coming on again. I assumed that she would leave. Maybe she needs the money. Oh, I don't no. know. I think the rumors I've heard of how much she gets paid, I think she's going to stick around on that show for as long, uh, for as, long as she watching. can. <laughs> Same. That's the. I'm like. I. I was saying to something the other day. I was like, I'm over her as a person. As in, I don't. I really don't agree with how she conducts herself. But I obviously I need to see the story play out now. Like I'm this far in. I need to see it play out with the other women, particularly the the split in the group of how they feel about her. I'm like, sorry. Like you say, I need to watch that on my TV. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just thinking about like housewives that I really don't like as people and would not want in my life, but that make for fascinating TV. And are kind yes. of like the lifeblood of like Teresa Judice, right? Like Vicky yeah. Gunvalson, like people that I wouldn't want to be friends with in life, but I think like are just people who are designed for reality TV. And Erica might be one of those people. I don't know. Yeah, I think she might be, particularly in recent years. Um, I know you've watched a little bit of Salt Lake City and you've seen some of the most recent season where obviously Jen Shaw's arrest played out on camera and the conversation about you know, what, you know, what's been alleged and what she's up for charges wise and the trial that's incoming. Like, what did you think of the contrast in how the women on that show talked about that versus, I guess, how the women reacted to Erica? Because a lot of fans notice a difference. And I would imagine as someone who, who looks at behavior and patterns, you maybe saw something in that as well. Yeah, so I've watched, I didn't get up to the arrest, and I have that kind of in the backlog for when my semester's over, so I haven't really seen the aftermath of that. I do know that on Beverly Hills, I think there was a lot of backlash against the women for not, like, immediately condemning her. Um, Yeah. But of course, there's that history there, right, because they condemned Denise, and then there was backlash for that, right? So I think that they were treading very carefully and at a certain point, right, they don't know. I mean, we still don't really know, right, like what she knew. I mean, I, I honestly can't really 
blame them for not is, is that what you're referring to like you know in beverly hills how they didn't kind of immediately you know chastise erica or say immediately say that this is wrong kind of rallying around her instead yeah and there was a little bit of a contrast that on salt lake city some of the women came out very hard against jen on camera but also the audience has not been as hard on jen as they have erica even though what jen is accused of is far more well first of all jen has been like actually arrested and jen has actually been charged with something whereas erica's like may at most and i'm not downplaying this possible severity but erica's seen as maybe someone who's complicit or possibly an accomplice outside of charges like it's just been it's just been an interesting contrast in how people receive uh personalities almost is that true that people haven't been as hard on jen yeah it's weird like it's just the social media outrage has not been the same and it's, and then sometimes people go, well, it's just something as simple as Jen is more fun to watch on the show. I don't know. It's like, it's really hard well, to explain. That, and actually, yeah. Are, yeah. Are, pe- are fewer people watching? So I just feel like Erica is such a big personality. And I don't, yeah. I could be wrong, but I think the viewership numbers are higher for Beverly Hills. They are, yeah. Right. Are. So like, just maybe more people are paying attention. To yeah. And plus <laughs> there was that like Hulu documentary that focused on them. So, mm. right. I think that also brought attention to it. Yeah. Salt Lake City is an interesting entry into the franchise because it's a newer one and by the time it arrived you got the sense that the women doing it kind of know how to quote-unquote be reality stars but for me it's always had this slightly strange quality because it's like set in a place we don't always see on TV and you kind of talk about in the book like how there's sort of a baseline of normal behavior we expect and then reality TV sort of subverts it because some people take it further I mean do you think Salt Lake City represents almost like a new era of reality TV that feels more heightened and a bit stranger, or is it just that's the nature of the beast that these shows have been on for 15 or 16 years in this franchise? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I did. I, I agree that it does feel a bit strange, especially because it's Salt Lake City, but like they're mainly like not really Mormons, right? And it doesn't... Yes, they're not all Mormon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost could be anywhere that... Right. And then the the personalities are really extreme um, on that show. I actually didn't think they were going to have a second season because the first season was kind of like a nothing burger. But good thing they had one because, right, like all this drama coming with Jen. Um, I do think I don't know, though. I just feel I I don't think Salt Lake City was kind of like a new some a new iteration of reality TV. I think it's an offshoot of, you know every other it just seemed like the same tropes were happening right someone's starting a business yeah. right like two people fight and then someone needs to apologize and someone's still upset right people coming up with ridiculous reasons to be upset people having parties right in some ways yeah. it just felt like yeah it's a new place yeah like someone is married to her pseudo grandfather right, right? <laughs> but at the same time it's it, it's a retread in a lot of ways yeah it's, so in a way in a weird way we think we want all these new things from reality tv but actually it is a kind of it's the certain familiar plot points and the same beats that we actually do kind of come back for yeah absolutely but i think it can't be too familiar like like you said right the people came on this who came on this show like like they kind of knew how to be housewives at this point right this is the show's been on forever they know they know what they want to sell they know what their character is going to be um and I think that could be tedious in a way, which again is why I always like to look for like the really real moments, the kind of smudges in the gloss where something is happening and you know they're not playing a character. It's like it's a very real moment. Yeah, that's very true. That like it's sort of the the blend of the two. Um, I know that you've watched kind of the early days of Housewives of Atlanta, which is obviously kind of 
a pillar of the Housewives world and you've dipped into Potomac a little bit, which is a relatively newer show, but that has got a real, uh, like there's a really strong following for it. And those are interesting shows because they're very entertaining, but also they're in Housewives world, still the only kind of, the only shows that have majority black casts Mm -hmm. and they focus on the lives of black women in America. And in your book, you talk at length about kind of how racial stereotyping has been a factor in reality TV kind of from the beginning, even on shows like The Real World when they were a little more sedate or kind of less conflict driven. What are ways in which kind of shows like Potomac and Atlanta lean into those stereotypes and maybe even subvert them or use them for representation when people don't feel like there's enough in other places? I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's really nuanced, right? Because you can look Mm -hmm. at, you know, stereotypes of people of color that have existed in the United States, you know, at least for hundreds of years, and you can find them on these shows, right? Like the the angry black man, the like bitchy black, can I say bitchy? Probably you said shitsters. Of course you can, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, that's what they told me on NPR and then they bleeped me. But yeah, so the- the, Okay, no bleeping here. The angry, the angry black woman, I should say, right? Like, or the like, the, you know, the sexually licentious, black woman like these you can find these stereotypes and i don't think it's a mis like an error i think that there's there there's it's purposeful in some ways by production um to kind of lean into these stereotypes um but at the same time right like a lot of people of color watch these shows at the same time you can tell that many of these women on these shows are kind of like leaning into these stereotypes and kind of laughing all the way to the bank. Um, And also at the same time, reality TV in general has been historically more diverse than other forms of media, more diverse than other forms of TV. And yes, that's problematic in some ways because it leans into these stereotypes, but at the same time, there's something to be said for representation, right? Which is likely why so many people of color tune into these shows and enjoy these shows. So I think it's, it's extremely nuanced, right? Where they are perpetuating, you know, certain ugly racial stereotypes that do, you know, assist in keeping our country racially divided, but at the same time, and by they, I mean production. I don't mean the people on the shows. Yes, um, yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, they're, they're clearly like, people of color are clearly like tuning in and, and getting something from, from these shows which is really, really kind of an interesting dynamic. And Potomac was really interesting to me. I don't know if that made it into the book or not. I'm trying to remember the season of the Potomac with Mono- with Monique, where you mentioned. No, you. I don't think you mentioned in particular, but it it was funny because when you spoke about respectability politics, I thought a lot about the Monique Candace fight season and how the women reacted. Yeah. It it definitely felt like an example of that. But obviously, you had a lot of shows to cover well, yeah, in that I book, think, so I, I can understand I had, some I things may have gone to press before that. But yeah, so yes. right, this moment, very fourth wally moment where they get together and they say, we don't act like that. We don't yeah. do that, right? We don't play into those stereotypes, right? Like the, what they're really saying, right, is like we on this show, we haven't, and they hadn't like up until the, that point, right? Yeah. Like hadn't really played that much into these these ugly stereotypes that have kind of pervaded American culture. Um, yeah. And so what they're really talking about kind of their roles on the shows. And again, yeah, respectability, politics i thought that was a really fascinating season it it, it was and it's one of, like it's kind of a season i know a lot of people started watching the show on too because it was so hyped up and a lot of attention went on the fight but then it was really the conversation about the fight that drove that and it's funny because you mentioned in the book as well the statistics around for example black americans were more likely to watch certain reality shows than other demographics but also you made the point that studies and commentary show that they don't they watch them critically as well that some people are so and i mean some people in the broadest sense whether they be lgbt people people of color 
we're kind of starved for representation sometimes that we'll take even maybe questionable representation and we'll watch it critically because we're grateful to have any of it. I can tell you as a queer person, like so many people I know, we watch Drag Race that way. Like mm-hmm. it is an interesting kind of uh, dichotomy there in how we watch the shows. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because Drag Race is not unproblematic in and of itself. Yeah. Though it's one of my favorite shows. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I quote, you know, a, a, a woman of color, a scholar of color who says, you know, why do we keep watching these shows? Because we want to see ourselves, even if even if it is problematic in some ways. Yeah, I think that's, and I thought the kind of idea of watching the shows critically is obviously part and parcel of of your work, but also it it does come up in the book. I mean, is that something that you find yourself doing just even when you're watching OC this season? You're like, right, I'm watching this to unwind, but also I've got my, I've got my sociology hat on a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because people, you know, people will say, well, you're like, you're, you're intelligent. Why do you watch these shows? And part of it is there's not a lot at stake in these shows. You can kind of just sit back and let them kind of wash over you. But then do I actually do that? No, because I'm always, you know, analyzing what's happening in the shows. It's kind of an occupational hazard. Um, But I enjoy that, right? Like that's, that's, there's a reason I'm a sociologist as my profession. That's fun for me to do. Um, So even though I do have my sociologist hat on, it's still kind of leisure for me to sit back and watch the shows and analyze the shows. Um, But yeah, I mean, also, you know, just, just as a woman, right? Like women are portrayed in really negative. Like there are a lot of stereotypes about women that pervade these shows, like the real housewives, right? Um, And, you know, I often get, you know, pushback, like how can you watch shows that like portray like women, women so negatively? And the thing is like, gender stereotypes are everywhere in our culture. They're not just, and they, they exist because, right, we have a stark gender divide and, you know, we think about gender in some ways in very, still very conservative ways. So it's not just the real housewives that are pumping that out into the world. The real housewives are pumping that out into the world because that exists in the world. Yes, exactly. That's very true. Um, Another housewife city that I know you've kind of you're fairly up to date with is Housewives in New York. You even use, Luann actually comes up a couple of times in the book as an example of someone who's like, I guess, changed their class position over the years. I mean, what is it about New York that you like as a viewer? And and why did Luann work for you as an example in your book? Oh, Luann is so interesting. I think I, I've watched New York since the beginning. I mean, I'm, I'm from near New York city from a suburb of New York city. So, you know, I always like seeing the familiar sites, um, but yeah, Luann is so interesting because she gets so much flack for being unreal, right? Especially from someone like Bethany, who's like, I keep it real. Everything's real. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's so interesting because again, like that's a social construct, the idea that what is reality? It's all a social construct. So the idea that, you know, Luann is, you know, saying she loves Tom, but like things are falling apart behind the scenes. We, we all do that to some extent, right? We all put on kind of a brave face. We all perform in ways, even though things might be falling apart. Like just a, look at social media, right? It's this kind of front yeah. page with where we perform our perfect lives, even though nobody's life is perfect. So I think Luann is just doing kind of in heightened form what we all do um, every day. Um, at the same time, she's getting chastised for it by her fellow cast members. That's so true. I hadn't thought we're, we are all Luan. Basically. We are all Luan in some ways. <laughs> and it's funny because I think it, it also reflects a shift that that particular show has had where when they started, like their wealth and their status was a big part of it. But I always joke 
when I'm trying to get people to watch New York that like once it finds its groove it's kind of a show about horny older women in New York like they really are <laughs> bar hopping and dating and it's kind of it's not a million miles from a show like Sex and City actually in a weird way like like even the show itself has changed as the women either because of being on the show or because of what happened in their lives like they're all not they're not all tied to men anymore they're actually much more about like living a much kind of freer life which is kind of interesting given that a lot of them are quote unquote older I suppose yeah that's a really good point I mean of course you know none of them are really housewives anymore yeah. um as yeah. has been pointed out um but yeah that is a good point although it's interesting because oftentimes there's a pushback from the audience right like oh Ramona's too old to be acting like that or right they're they're embarrassing themselves and it seems to be tied to their age at least in the kind of social media accounts and message boards that I follow there's often kind of there's still the stigma against these kind of quote unquote older women behaving in these ways that are really socially acceptable only for younger women, um, if at all. Um, but yeah, but it is representation in a way, yeah. right? Like they're showing that, that women of a certain age can be sexual and proud of their sexuality. Um, that's interesting. And it's funny too, because you mentioned there the message boards and like the sort of fan reaction sometimes. And when you think of when Leah joined in her first season and suddenly... Sonia and Ramona and even the one were suddenly like but that's not classy because you have tattoos and you do this and in my head I'm like you and Leah are re- really not very different it's just an age gap there's not much that she's doing that's very different to what you guys do oh right and I mean maybe that's one of the reasons I love the Countess too just the dramatic irony of her like you know pointing out like what is and is not classy while at the same time like she does many things that we would consider to be not very classy like being on a reality show for one right um but yeah, yes, no, it is exactly. interesting. And then that goes into like, you know, what is classy and what's not is a social construct, right? Like what we consider to be like, why is a tattoo classy or trashy? It's just because we've decided we've gotten together and decided that that's what that means. That's a signifier of a tattoo. So it's, so it's interesting how even within the broad framework of the Real Housewives, you have like these different cities where like the dress code almost is different. Like you wouldn't get the style on New Jersey and Beverly Hills because they go further and further with the opulence and the labels and all that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And also, you know, how the show has shifted over time, as we've talked about, yeah. right? If you look at the sky tops in OC's first season, <laughs> yeah. right? They really like... <laughs> And now it's just, it's so absurd, right? Like, even if they're just having, like, dinner at someone's house, it's like, they have their glam squad, and they're, like, decked out, and the hair, and yeah, absolutely. Listen, I don't want to alarm you, but, like, if any of your students suddenly come in wearing sky tops, we know that it's come back around, and we might have to, you might have to intervene. Oh, no. Do they still sell sky tops? I don't know. (laughs) They'll be all buying them vintage and wearing them and doing TikTok videos about that. I'm just saying, it could happen. I just could sell them and make money, she would, so... Yes, absolutely. Um, we talked a lot about your book and all the different kind of housewife shows, but I'm so curious, just as a fan, like I love asking people this question, and I'm so cur- curious what you're going to have for this one. Uh, what would your housewife's tagline be? Okay, so I've thought about this, and I think it okay. would be related <laughs> to the fact that I'm an academic. So it would be something like, I may be a professor, but don't try to school me. Yes, I was. I was gonna say school is a great like word yeah. to lead it's into. A yeah, close yeah. To Dr. Wendy, I think she had something about like I don't grade yeah. on the curve. I am the curve or something like that. Yeah, but um, yeah. Or you works. could say like maybe in your second season when you've established like a place in the group, you might say, "I'll teach my students and I'll school you." Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, that's these are all very strong. Yeah. Okay, that's we're we're working with something strong here. Um, another question I love asking 
people on this podcast is you're having a dinner party tomorrow you can have five people from housewives world over so you could have housewives husbands hangers on friends of side characters whoever what five people are coming around and why oh husbands could be on there okay anybody any i'm like let's do whatever we need to do so yeah so it's interesting right because i was saying there are people that i think make great characters on reality tv but i wouldn't necessarily want at a dinner party yes yes of course (laughs) yeah um so okay so i think there's gonna be a lot of new york representation so i think so this is a a blast in the past but alex mccord okay the original new york because she talks about what happened i mean she used to write a blog i think still does about what happens behind the scenes of real housewives shows. so she could give me all the dirt that's the main reason for her um and isn't she not i think she's She's in Australia now, and I want yeah. to say she may be studying or pra- like. I think she might be doing academia or sociology. Don't quote me. She's done some kind of sorry. She studied psychology or something now. So like in an odd way, you might even bond over over academics. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, academia. I should academics. say. Um. So Alex, and then I think I'd have to have Nene Leaks. Just, of course. Just a, such a fun personality to have at a dinner party. Absolutely. Um. I think so that's two. Um, yeah. Countess, I gotta have the Countess. I mean, I gotta. <laughs> I love that you still call her Countess. As I, well. <laughs> no, who doesn't? I think she calls herself the Countess. She does. She, she does. It's her her tour is with the Countess, so I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Vanderpump, maybe. I think okay. Be fun. And then is that four? And then I think yeah. I don't know Rinna. Maybe okay. Lisa Rinna. I just feel like they would give me the most dirt on the. Like what's happening backstage at the Housewives, which is really I would what also, I'm looking for. Yeah, here. yes, you want the insider dish. I also love the idea that if you were speaking to Luann and you casually mentioned that you used her an example in her book, she'd be like, "Oh, how fabulous!" Like she would like <laughs> what she that would you might like with Luann, no matter where she is in terms of the highs and lows of her life. Like you can always tell when someone strokes her ego, she's thrilled. Exactly. So I think you if you brought that up, I think she'd be like, "Oh, tell me more." <laughs> impression by the way <laughs> thank you i've never today i think is my first day <laughs> debuting it so thank you we'll workshop that one excellent <laughs> okay that's a strong a dinner party a checklist um i know you mentioned there that you kind of like once your semester ends you'll catch up on shows so in terms of your housewives viewing habits or your housewives viewing journey like is there a show you're dying to get back into or maybe rewatch or catch up on um so i definitely need to catch up on salt lake city because again i've only seen like, yes. the first few episodes and obviously so much happens um i need to catch up I, I kind of know a little bit of what happens but i still need to catch up on that mm-hmm. um i think you know i really like to watch more of potomac um yeah i got into potomac late um and so i i'd like to catch up on that so probably those are the two franchises where i'd, I'd really like to catch up yeah, they're two strong ones to get back into. And they're more, as you mentioned, they're kind of more recent. So I, it is funny seeing the contrast, as you mentioned, watching the early days of OC to like these newer shows where they just, it's just such, a, it has really changed so much. So much. Um, and before we go, I, let's, I mean, I've mentioned your book quite a bit today, obviously, but te- for people who are listening who want to know more, can you tell us, I guess, what the book is about and what you get into? Because obviously it is not just a book about housewives. You cover so much about reality TV in the book. Sure. So it's called True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Um, And it's basically kind of a sociological look 
at reality TV. So what it teaches us kind of as a text, what it teaches us about ourselves, not as individuals, but ourselves as a society. So in some ways, it teaches us, weirdly, how conservative we are. Um, Even though these shows are filled with zany people in bizarre scenarios, it really teaches us how narrowly and conservatively we think about things like gender, race, social class, what constitutes a family, what what a real woman should do or a real man should do, sexuality, um, and, and things like that. So it's interesting, this sort of paradox where it's, these shows are like, they seem really far removed from our everyday life, but in a lot of ways, they can show us kind of the core of who we are. I think what I liked about the book as well is that we mentioned, like, we're talking about different things, we're saying how it's nuanced, but your book is very nuanced too, in that, like, there's hope in it too, where, like, you yourself as a viewer, and you kind of quote other people who said that there's huge potential in these shows to obviously connect us socially, is like a bonding with friends, but also to kind of have representation and maybe almost be a vehicle to see, I guess, other perspectives or other kind of lives that maybe don't make it into scripted or a film or television in the traditional sense. Oh, absolutely. You know, I say reality TV can kind of show us the ugliest features of most grotesque features of ourselves, right? Our racism, our sexism, our homophobia, our social inequalities really writ large. But at the same time, they can sort of show us positive glimmers of ourselves as well. You know, reality TV was, you know, telling queer stories long before scripted yeah. TV caught up. They've been a vehicle for racial, different racial, different racial representations, which again, off, often can be very stereotyped and problematic. But there is something to be said for representation. They kind of take us into kind of areas of society that scripted TV doesn't often show us. So I do believe, I am an evangelist for reality TV. I do believe in the kind of liberatory potential of reality TV. And honestly, I wouldn't keep watching it. I wouldn't be such a fan if that weren't the case. That's true. I mean, I have to ask, you wrote this really detailed, complex book. You you talk about this topic as part of your work as a professor. Like, are there any reality shows that like, you still love, even though you've had to talk a lot, are there any that you're like, I've watched it for work, but actually I really couldn't do it in my own time. Like what are the shows you like and the shows you love just in general in reality TV? I'm really curious because you cover so many in the oh, book. Shows that I, well, shows that I really like, um, Real Housewives, obviously, that's really up there. Yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, I yes. mean, again, there, there are some problems with that show, but I, that's, I think that may be my favorite reality show. Um, Same, overall. yeah. If I wasn't doing a Housewives podcast, I think I'd be doing a Drag Race, Race podcast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean reality TV can teach us things, right? Like, I've learned just so much from RuPaul. Like, just how to, I don't, everything I know about drag, I learned from RuPaul's Drag Race. And that might, might seem like a small thing, but it's something I wouldn't have learned otherwise. Yeah, it's a great gateway joke. I mean, I know some people who start watching the show and then they go start going to drag shows in their area or they discover other drag queens who don't do the show and it's it is a great a great gateway drug for people to understand more about that art form i definitely know friends get it more when i show them the show who maybe not properly seen it locally or whatever right oh that's great um yeah so definitely those shows i think shows that are difficult for me to watch include cops i wouldn't It's diff- it, just in terms of sort of the, the racial stereotyping um, and a lot of the dynamics on that show, it's difficult for me to watch that show for leisure. Um, yeah. I think it's really fascinating as a sociological object, but it's not fun for me to sit down and watch cops. Um, yeah. And even, you know, a show I have watched, like The Bachelor, I, I have watched. It's sometimes it gets a little repetitive and tedious for me because it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Um, yeah. So that that's not among my favorites, although I have watched that for fun. 
Okay, interesting. I mean, you've had, you've had, and it's also some dice for work as well, so you've had to watch quite a bit. Um, before we go, where can people find your work online or, or I guess they can get your book on Amazon if people want to follow you on social media or head to your website, where can they do so? Sure. So my website is www.daniellelindemann.com um, and I'm on Twitter at DJ Lindy, D-J-L-I-N-D-E-E. Um, and yeah, you, my book is available on Amazon, oftentimes at your local bookseller as well. And again, it's true story, what reality TV says about us. Perfect. And I'll put links in the show notes for this episode if people want to get their hands at here in Ireland and bookshops here that have it. Um, Danielle Lindemann, I could do another two hours on this topic with you, but I'm aware you're very busy. (laughs) Um, thank you very much for coming on Housewives and Me. Thank you so much for having me. There you go. That's Danielle Lindemann here on Housewives and Me. The book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, is out now. It's kind of only available, well, it's out in the US. It is available here. I've spotted it on some Irish sites like Eason's and that kind of thing. So in the show notes for this episode, I will link to some places that you can pick up the book. It is available as an ebook as well, which might be an option for some of you. I know some people with uh, kind of imports and stuff find it a bit easier and cheaper to get an ebook. So I'll find some links and pop that in the show notes for you. And I'll put up links to Danielle's website and her social media if you'd like to check out more of her work. She's a really great uh, writer, as you probably guessed, and a great speaker about all these topics. And the book is definitely well worth checking out. I, I found it, it kind of joined dots for me about how I watched reality TV that I hadn't considered before. And that is all you can ask when you read a book about a topic you love that it'll hopefully shine a light on. Aside of something that you haven't thought of before. So do check out the book and Danielle's work. She is very talented. If you liked what you heard today and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate if you'd leave a rating or a review because it helps the show find new listeners. On Spotify, you can also rate podcasts now. So do consider leaving us a rating there as well. You can follow the show on social media at Housewives and Me on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well. It's Connor Bean is where you'll find me on those places. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and I'll talk to you soon. 